Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is late Friday afternoon on the West Coast on June 17th, 2022. I'm slipping a late show in to talk about Ukraine. Uh, We haven't done that for a while. It's rather depressing, actually. I have to admit that we had many shows about the Russian invasion of Ukraine when it happened, and now we've gone cold on it, which perhaps reflects a general boredom or misunderstanding of what's happening there. The headlines today are about, on Ukraine at least, are about Putin stoking anti-American sentiment and Ukraine stepping closer to the EU, meaning I'm not sure whether that means that they're stepping closer to becoming part of the EU or just getting closer. The images of this terrible war are as depressing as ever. For those of you watching, here we have a really dreadful image of uh, of what this war is doing to the homes and civilian lives um, in, in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine is playing an interesting game. It's hard to sometimes figure out exactly what he's doing. He certainly looks good, but one wonders uh, exactly what his game plan is. Um, and as I said, the Europe is offering Ukraine a hope of joining the EU. We've all heard that one before, the hope. But not of asked Arsenal people, the EU and the United States, are not willing to arm Ukraine, at least. Um, so the question becomes, and this may be one of the reasons why we haven't really talked about Ukraine for a while, is what should and is our support for Ukraine? Should we be articulating our support? as a defense of democracy, or should we be focusing on sovereignty? Is this a Cold War struggle or something else? I was particularly intrigued by an interesting piece in The Atlantic last week uh, by the distinguished international relations uh, thinker and historian Stephen Wertheim. Um, He argues in The Atlantic that um, America needs to focus not on democracy, on sovereignty. It may not be an entirely popular position. And I think in many ways, this is borrowed from his book, Tomorrow the World, uh, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, which just came out in paperback last month. Stephen is joining us from uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where I think all the foreign policy experts in the world live. Uh, Stephen, you've been following Ukraine, obviously, a lot more closely than most of us. Can you give us a summary of where we're at? Well, uh, thank you for having me on, first of all. I think we are um, we are at probably an inflection point of the second phase of the war. The opening phase uh, was a botched attempt by Russia to overthrow the government of Ukraine, to oust Zelensky in a flash. That didn't work. Uh, Russia has now switched gears uh, to try to conquer territory in eastern and southern Ukraine. It's made a good amount of progress. Um, And so we seem to be settling into something of a war of attrition, uh, a really brutal war uh, in eastern Ukraine, uh, in which um, ammunition uh, makes a big difference. 
Uh, it comes down to um, volume uh, and quality in an artillery war. And Ukraine has now um, become pretty dependent on Western aid, uh, which is where the United States comes in uh, with uh, billions uh, being, being sent. Um, and so I think now we have a kind of question of it's, it's not uh, going to be easy, uh, perhaps not even possible to oust uh, Russian forces from all the positions that they've come to occupy since this part of the war began, uh, since the invasion, the full-scale invasion that Vladimir Putin launched on February 24th. Uh, and so the question is, what are realistic war aims for, for Ukraine and its backers uh, in this war? I think in particular, a question that I have is, um, you know, how much will it take? How much destruction uh, will we see? Uh, and will that actually be, if the war goes on for many years, as many people think it will, um, will that destruction um does that destruction have to take place? And if so, will it lead to any gains for Ukraine? Uh, and so I think some difficult conversations need to be had right now to try to determine um, uh, what the best course uh, of action is now for Ukraine, because it's possible that the Western coalition that has supported Ukraine, uh, in a sense, may have peaked. Uh, right. So I have sanctions and so forth. Two or three questions, and thank you so much for that elegant, concise summary, Stephen. Um, firstly, did Western media, particularly American media, which tends to sensationalize stuff, did they misrepresent the war, you think, at the beginning, overpromise? Um, and perhaps Joe Biden as well. That's the first question. Secondly, are the U.S. and the Europeans, are they talking the same game here? Aren't they in agreement? And thirdly, what is Zelensky's goal here? I mean, he, he, he can't believe that he can actually defeat the Russians. Sometimes he says that, but he can't be serious, is he? Well, all very good questions. Um, let me take the last one first. Uh, it's not clear exactly what uh, Zelensky's goal is. He's indicated from the beginning that he would accept neutrality, in other words, dropping uh, Ukraine's bid to join NATO. That's pretty clear. Uh, but I think the most difficult thing right now is the question of territory. Um, is it possible that Russia might give back territory that it's conquered? Right now, that would seem to be necessary in order for there to be any kind of a, a ceasefire or a peace settlement um, between Russia and Ukraine, because the Zelensky government uh, has indicated it said some different things about its ultimate aims, but but the most common position uh, seems to be that Ukraine at least uh, wants to recover all the territory that it's lost to Russian forces since February 24. Uh, and so, you know, if Zelensky or others in the Ukrainian government are um, willing to compromise on that point, it's it's not apparent uh, at all from from public signals. Well, one must assume that they're all playing a high-stakes game here. No one's going to reveal their hand or fold until they absolutely have to. 
Exactly. And that gets to your first question, which is, um, was there kind of an overpromise? I'm, I don't think that Western media or Western leaders um, made many promises, literally. So I don't think anyone made, you know, predictions uh, that we can easily say uh, are uh, have been proven to be incorrect. But I do think uh, there was an overconfidence um, that many people developed as a result of um, being surprised that Russia botched its initial approach so uh, so fulsomely and uh, being inspired by Ukraine's resistance. Uh, so I think that may have led to um, uh, a view that uh, Russia was really incompetent and um, was something of a paper tiger. And so we have to find, you know, the actually correct height of the Russian forces. They're not 10 feet tall. They're not two feet tall. Um, so I think that's, uh, been more the issue than, you know, claims that are specifically, uh, in incorrect. And then thirdly, this, the, the, the third question involved whether the U S and the Europeans are actually on the same page here. Yeah, I think it's really more that the Europeans themselves are divided, you know, roughly between Western Europe and Eastern Europe or France and Britain on the one hand and uh, the countries uh, from Poland onward that are that are closer to uh, Russia. Um, so the United States has been more out front, perhaps, than the British and the, and the Germans have been. Um, I, I don't want to make too much of these differences. I, I'm not, you know... Um, convinced that even uh, French President Macron, who gets a lot of flack, you know, is fundamentally in a different place from the other allies. Uh, yeah. But they've tended to be more interested in uh, finding a negotiated solution, finding a way for Vladimir Putin to be able to back down a little less gung ho in taking risks through uh, weapons transfers to Ukraine. Uh, than uh, than countries uh, in in Eastern Europe, and then let's get to the the core of the subject, which you wrote this really interesting piece about Joe Biden's performance. Does he get it? Doesn't seem to get very much these days. Does he understand this difference even between the support for democracy and sovereignty? Have they all thought this thing through within the Biden administration? You're in D.C., so I assume you talk to people in the administration all the time. Yeah, you know, we saw the administration react very quickly um, to to events, and to its credit, it assembled um, a wider coalition than one might have predicted uh, in support of uh, the uh, uh, sanctions regime on Russia. So the sanctions hit harder, deeper, uh, and with more countries participating uh, than one would have expected, uh, and. So I, I think the administration kind of uh, has lumped two different rationales uh, for supporting Ukraine together. And at the beginning, I, I imagine with the press, uh, the uh, uh, swirl of events pressing upon them, uh, the administration didn't really see these um, goals as being contradictory. So one case that the administration is making is that Ukraine's cause is the cause of democracy. Uh, and so countries should get on board to support Ukraine and punish Russia uh, in order to engage in what the president has called a battle for uh, democracy against autocracy. Then the other 
rationale, which to be fair, the administration, particularly in the UN, um, has also cited from the beginning, is a defense of Ukraine's sovereignty, its independence, uh, and its territorial integrity. Uh, to me, the latter reason is the reason why I care so much and I sympathize so much with Ukraine's cause. It's not so much because Ukraine is a, a democracy. Actually, it's a you know quite flawed democracy, which I think everybody knows. Well, not um, everybody. And I think <laughs> that that's the problem. And I think that's where your argument is so interesting is because... Um, I think if people understood that, I mean, some of the more sophisticated analysts, yourself and Applebaum has been on the show, others recognize this, but most Americans don't know this part of the world very well, certainly the the Ukraine. Um, so they're not able to understand that Ukraine's politics or its political history is deeply flawed when it comes to democracy. It is. If you look at the... Um Freedom House rankings of freedom and democracy, um, Viktor Orban's Hungary uh, gets somewhat higher scores uh, on freedom and democracy. Which is quite an achievement, really. Yes. And we're, many people will describe Viktor Orban as, uh, as an autocrat. So, you know, look, actually, it was pretty widely acknowledged, including by President Biden, just before the invasion, that Ukraine's democracy was deeply flawed. And that was one of the reasons why uh, it didn't meet the criteria to, to join NATO. And then overnight, there's been this shift to positioning Ukraine as a bulwark of democracy around the globe. Now, you know, you might argue that that's not so hypocritical and it's possible for Ukraine to be both a very flawed democracy uh, and on the front lines of democracy. But more important, I think, is, you know, what kinds of um, what kind of message does it send uh, to much of the world which has chosen to be on the sidelines in a material way, not join the sanctions on Russia, um, even as many countries around the world don't approve of Russia's actions. And I think the message it sends is that, you know, maybe the United States doesn't care so much about another country's sovereignty unless it views that country as a democracy. And not only that, it seems rather arbitrary that we've suddenly chosen to do so. And Is particularly that- given um, American behavior historically in its own backyard in Cuba when it comes to sovereignty and parts of Central America. So it, it is it fits into a lot of America's to the stereotypical critique of America of not being consistent. Um, does this fit? Um, uh, does this fit, Stephen, with the argument you make in your book, "Tomorrow the World: The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy"? Do you argue in the book that that after the Second World War, America chose to build its global supremacy, not on supporting democracy, but on sovereignty? Well, I think that uh, this was a revelation to me as I dug around into the archives. Uh, It was actually in the early years of World War II, prior to Pearl Harbor, that a whole range of uh, American officials and intellectuals looked ahead into the future and came to 
really stunningly new view that the United States had to be the dominant power in the world. And I think that actually meant, um, in a sense, viewing the United States with special responsibility or a kind of super sovereignty so that the United States could violate rules and norms or define rules and norms uh, as it liked. Uh, th this also wasn't really about promoting democracy or defending other democracies. But it was motivated by uh, a sense, especially in the wake of the Nazi conquest of France in the middle of 1940, which was the key turning point, uh, that it would be uh, unacceptable for totalitarian powers uh, to conquer much of Europe and Asia. So that was originally what brought the United States uh, to believe that it should abandon its historic aversion to getting uh, involved in political military entanglements in Europe and Asia, and instead act to be a kind of guarantor uh, of uh, what uh, was called at the time world order. And but so Stephen, um, yes, you could be or not you, but one making this argument could be accused of a degree of cynicism. It could have justified American, I don't know if this is the right word, rubber stamping of Yalta and the division of Europe, because the Soviets maintained, quote unquote, the sovereignty of Poland or Romania or Hungary or Czechoslovakia, but they essentially colonized them. So at what point does sovereignty and colonialization sort of get so entangled that they become indistinguishable? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, coming out of um, the war, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, I think, um, knew pretty well that the Soviet Union would have a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. He could look at a map and he could see where uh, Soviet tanks were. Uh, actually, this was, you know, partly the result of the U.S. decision uh, to follow what the British preferred and to take their time in opening uh, the uh, Western Front. Uh, through the D-Day landing and instead start by uh, going through the Mediterranean. Uh, so Franklin Roosevelt himself and others in the administration then were comfortable with having a world with spheres of influence, uh, but they hoped that it would be a kind of open world with open spheres of influence where the Soviets wouldn't dominate quite everything in Eastern Europe. Uh, Americans could still perhaps do some modicum of business. Uh, so who knows how FDR, had he survived, would have navigated those those challenges. But uh, obviously, in the years uh, after that, with uh, Harry Truman as president, the United States decided that um, it was uh, not tolerable for uh, the Soviet Union to be in a position where it might uh, it might come to be um, uh, threatening to Central and, and Western Europe. Stephen, does this put you very squarely in the realist camp in terms of America leading the world, making sense of the world? Is it, it, can, it, it can commit itself to defending the sovereignty of countries, but not democracy. Are you suggesting that democracy is too messy, too complicated, um, plus the fact, of course, that American democracy is hardly in the best shape. And a lot of people could simply say, well, you don't have a democracy. Why should we? Well, I care about democracy a lot and I care about sovereignty. Um, 
So, you know, if you want to call me a realist or whatever, go. go I mean, right I don't ahead. mean that as a criticism. Yeah. I, no, 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 I no. actually am a realist myself. I think it's a, right. a badge of honor. No, but I, I, I think when it comes to international conduct, um, we are better served trying to have a world where sovereignty is respected and to make that uh, a foundational norm uh, of, of U.S. action. And I think it's much more fraught uh, when the United States uh, makes claims about how it's on the side of democracy and uh, those that oppose are on the side of autocracy. Um, you know, whether or not that's exactly true, although it obviously has major exceptions, look at Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, but whether or not that's by and large true, um, it really sends a message to countries uh, who are on the other end of the equation that um, the United States doesn't want to do business with them, sees them as beyond the pale. And this is a significant part of the problems um, in our relationship with a lot of countries around the world, including China. And that's yeah, very- Yeah, I, I want to get to China because I think that's the central in this conversation. But essentially, you articulating a kind of uh, Bush the Elder doctrine, the, the, the argument that uh, Bush the Elder made over Kuwait versus Bush the Younger on Iraq, which turned into a complete and utter disaster of bringing democracy to, you, to, to Iraq, whereas all the older Bush did was push the Iraqis out. That's a great way to put it. I think what I'm saying is, um, as counterintuitive as it might seem, Joe Biden's approach right now toward Ukraine, at least his his rhetoric has more resemblance with George W. Bush and his crusades for democracy than it does with George H. W. Bush and his coalition uh, to remove Iraqi forces uh, from their invasion of Kuwait. And to my mind, that latter model by the elder Bush would be a better model uh, for uh, a robust uh, coalition uh, in, in, in this war. And of course, the one party we haven't even mentioned in this conversation yet on any level is uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin. So a couple of questions on that. Um, well, three questions, actually. I mean, firstly, what, what is your sense of Putin's goals? Would he, would he cash his chips in now if he could get a, an OK compromise and appear to you know, declare victory and go home? Secondly, um, when it comes to, to, to Putin, um, are we... We had, for example, uh, Maria Yovanovitch on the show uh, recently, a wonderful woman, very brave woman, who basically makes the argument that Putin and Trump are the same. Have we collapsed Putin into Trump? Are we so obsessed, particularly progressives in America, so so obsessed with Trump that we can only think in the context of Donald Trump and his peculiar relationship with Putin? And thirdly, when it comes to this issue of sovereignty, um, does your argument suggest that we might have, at least, if not gone to war, certainly armed Ukraine in 2014 when they invaded uh, Crimea? Well, thank you. Um, again, three big questions. So just come back to them when I forget to answer one or two of them. Uh, so uh, I think on the on the the latter one, um, 
you know, I don't think that um, trying to support other countries' sovereignty necessarily means that the United States needs to go to the mat uh, to support, uh, you know, their complete territorial integrity. Um, I think in in the war right now, uh, if Ukraine is able to emerge as a sovereign, independent country uh, that's able to arrange its affairs basically on the terms that it wants, uh, even if not all of its territory uh, is is under its control, uh, which given Crimea, certainly it won't be, I think we can say that we've defended that principle in a very meaningful way. Uh, so no, I don't think it would have uh, committed uh, any party to be more strongly uh, behind Ukraine's cause in in uh, in 2014. Um, now, I'm trying to think back to the first well, one. Putin, what's Putin? Oh, Putin. What is his game? Does he even have a game? Is he still well, alive? Who knows, right? I think he's probably still alive. Beyond that, nobody knows, right? Except Vladimir Putin. Um, I think one real possibility is that if Russian forces were to take uh, enough of eastern Ukraine, of the Donbass region, to come under control of, you know, all the territories uh, controlled by those acclaimed by the two independent republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and some additional territories, including uh, the swath of land that connects uh, Crimea to, uh, to the Donbass, you know, that that would be one possible point where he might be willing then to uh, contemplate uh, a peace settlement or a, or a ceasefire. Might he go beyond that? Uh, of course, that is possible. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it would be a certain threshold uh, would would uh, have been achieved uh, if Russian forces are able to uh, to to perform that well, I I also do think to come back to the realist question as well um, that Ukraine's geopolitical orientation has been quite important to Vladimir Putin and to Russian elites for some time. So it is notable that President Zelensky has indicated that he is willing to embrace neutrality, although also wants to join the EU, which is maybe a little inconsistent, but. Uh, neutrality vis-a-vis NATO to, to take Ukraine's application for membership off off the table. So that is an important sticking point uh, that the parties were not able to agree on prior to February 24th, uh, that now does seem like uh, there'd be a possibility for an agreement, although then there'd be a question about what kind of security assurances or guarantees. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ada Farah, the New York University historian of Cuba, was on the show. She won her a Pulitzer Prize for her wonderful book, Cuba and American History. I mean, she makes the argument that in strategic terms, there isn't a great deal of difference between Cuba and the US and Ukraine and Russia. I mean, she's she's not a, obviously, a, a, she's not a supporter in any way of, of the Russian invasion, but she perhaps suggests that we need to understand, I mean, she, she's not a Ukraine person, but perhaps her argument suggests that we need to be a little bit more sensitive to Russian geostrategic concerns. Oh, I, I think that, you know, we should look back very critically on our conduct, particularly after uh, George W. Bush made a big mistake in 2008, uh, twisting arms to get NATO to say that Georgia and Ukraine would become members of NATO 
one day. Um, that was needlessly provocative. We weren't serious about uh, having them join. And I, I do think, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of hypocrisy because the United States has secured its sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere so well that many people have forgotten that it did that. Uh, we had uh, the historian of uh, Latin America, Latinas in, in America, Juan Gonzalez, on the show this week. He reminds us that there was a lot of blood spill on that. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Charles Kupchin, uh, Kupchan. Uh, he, he's been on the show a couple of times, wrote an interesting book on American isolationism. He argues that Putin has the right to oppose the growth of NATO and Ukrainian you know, sort of suggestions that Ukraine could join NATO. How does NATO fit into your argument? It's obviously not an organization for democracies. The Turks are members. They barely have a democracy. Uh, is NATO founded around the idea of sovereignty? I don't even understand what the point of NATO is, apart from being an organization designed to encircle Russia? Well, NATO began uh, as an organization meant to, you know, guarantee the sovereignty uh, of uh, far fewer countries than our members now at, at the end, at the beginning of the Cold War, right, uh, to get the United States to uh, guarantee them essentially against a Soviet invasion. Uh, so the purpose of NATO is pretty clear through the Cold War. Uh, but I think um, what's really important for the present moment is what happens after the Cold War. NATO loses its reason for being. The Soviet Union completely disappeared. Um, and yet uh, something quite um, difficult to predict uh, occurred. NATO actually began to enlarge. Uh, and it enlarged uh, first with uh, three three countries at the end of the 1990s, and then um, with a with a bang in several successive rounds uh, to the point where the Baltic states, which were part of the Soviet Union, not even just part of the Warsaw Pact, part of the Soviet Union, uh, and obviously on Russia's borders, uh, were were made members uh, of NATO. Uh, and so I think this is actually a development that, you know, I understand as, as being part of the U.S. pursuit of primacy, of military dominance uh, over the last uh, three decades, uh, when uh, there was kind of a view that the United States really didn't need to worry about offending uh, countries uh, on the other end of its alliances. Uh, they didn't really matter. And uh, in any case, the United States defended its actions through very high-minded appeals, including appeals to uh, democracy and in the case of NATO in Europe, uh, a, a, a right, a supposed right of countries to choose their security arrangements, which we heard a lot in the run-up to um, the war in Ukraine. But it basically just means that uh, countries have a right to apply to join NATO, but NATO has no right to actually admit them. Right. And the complexity of NATO is you have the Turks now not letting the some Scandinavian countries in or not wanting to talk to them because of internal politics. Finally, um, uh, finally, uh, Stephen, and I think this is the most important issue of all. We've left it till the end. The China issue of Taiwan. Is it possible that Ukraine is just a, a dress rehearsal? 
for the real thing, Chinese invasion of, of, of Taiwan. And if that's the case, then the issue of democracy and sovereignty become really central, not just in American foreign policy, but in the whole future of the 21st century, even the future of the planet. Well, I do not think the war in Ukraine was conceived by, by Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping uh, as being a dress rehearsal for a uh, potential future Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Uh, I think Putin did this for his own reasons. Uh, and, uh, you know, even whether Xi Jinping knew that it was coming uh, is unclear. Uh, but it is very clear that these issues have become linked uh, in the minds of many in the in the West and in China. Uh, so there's no question that the Chinese are, are watching closely uh, to discern lessons for how... Uh, Is that why they partly they're supporting the Russians? Because it enables them to do what they will eventually or what they might do in Taiwan? I would say not quite. I think they're basically supportive of the Russians, although they are neutral in toward the conflict, um, because there is a larger strategic partnership between China and Russia, and that's very important to, to China. Um, but, you know, there is a sense in which what you're saying is true. China has come to see the expansion of NATO as part of um, the US-led West uh, trying to revise the world order uh, in terms that are adversarial to China's interests and Russia's interests. So there is a real identification, I think, now between uh, capitals, uh, Beijing and, uh, and Moscow. So the Taiwan issue now has acquired much bigger symbolic stakes, even though this is an issue that's been going on for decades, right? Mm. Uh, but it's acquired much bigger political stakes um, in our conversation about um, China and the future of world order. I think that's really um, unfortunate. I hope uh, this is just a theory, Stephen, uh, but certainly if China was to do something in, in Taiwan, this, this issue you bring up of sovereignty versus democracy would become even more Central. It's a it's a it's an important and interesting argument you make in in the Atlantic, and your book Tomorrow the World: The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy is just out in paperback. Congratulations on that, Stephen. Uh, what else are you reading these days? What else is uh, worth advising our viewers and listeners to read? Connects right to our discussion. Uh, Mary Elise Serrati's book called Not One Inch is a history of. NATO enlargement in the 1990s. Uh, it's a it's a pretty uh, riveting read, at least from my standpoint. Uh, it is <laughs> anything, a, anything know, could be riveting on NATO, Stephen. <laughs> but uh, I think it really shows how um, uh, you know American policymakers knew that uh, expanding NATO uh, would come at a real cost uh, to their relationship with Russia and. They tried to find ways to avoid making a choice and try to bring Russia on board. Uh, but by the end of the 1990s, when you know there were just three new countries added to added to NATO, it was quite clear that um, uh, that the relationship was uh, heading toward a very bad point. So the book 
leaves us with the entrance of, of Vladimir Putin. And the book also says a lot of interesting things about uh, Ukraine itself, uh, which uh, I think interestingly, uh, Sarati suggests was a real loser in NATO expansion uh, because it kind of narrowed the number of countries that were in between NATO and uh, Russia, uh, while Ukraine was was never really uh, going to be admitted, and so that put it in a more vulnerable position uh, than uh, than if NATO had not been enlarged. 